Good morning, one and all. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. So delighted to see you today. And if you're here for the first time, and thank you, by the way, for adjusting to the time change and those who are watching uh, at home, greetings to you as well. If you're here for the first time, so thankful you're here. Best way to know what's happening is probably to fill out a welcome card. It looks like that up there on the back kiosks. And if you do that, then you'll be on our regular email list. So I'm about to make a number of announcements. And you're like, well, I'd really like to hear those again. We send out a Friday email. Of course, the church website has all that information on there as well. Uh, but the welcome card would be a great first step. If you would do that, you can give them to one of us on staff or put them in the offering uh, boxes in the back. So greetings. A couple of things for moms of preschoolers. So starting the third, or I should say the 13th, that's this Tuesday, we have a mom's play date here at the church. So this is moms of preschoolers. Uh, we clear out the chairs in here and the little ones play and the moms have a time of fellowship. So moms of preschoolers, Tuesday the 13th from 10 in the morning. A fortnight after that, mom's night out, the same group of ladies, a moms of young children, this time without the children, uh, will be uh, getting together just a time of fellowship over, over the word and a chance to interact. But I'm just so thankful for that young uh, moms of young uh, children fellowship. They're doing an excellent job. And if you know anyone there or even a, a non-Christian neighbor, it'd be a great thing to come and check out. So the play date on the 13th here at the church at 10 a.m. and then the night out on the 27th. Crucially, VBS, Vacation Bible School, long-standing tradition uh, of Providence Church. We were so sad last year we had to cancel. This year, June 14th to 18th, and we're talking well over 100, 100 children in the building. We just would love to do a VBS, but what it means is that we need all, a lot of volunteers. So if you're comfortable doing that, uh, we'd, we'd love to have you. Dawn Garrett, you can be in touch with Dawn, but we just want to make sure that we can put on a, a great VBS as we always have, but that requires volunteers and a lot of help from the church family. So June 14th to 18th, it's in the mornings, you know, something like 9 to noon. Uh, we'd love to have you participate as a volunteer to do a great VBS. Men's hike and camp this upcoming Saturday, April 17th. You say, that's real confidence in the weather, isn't it? But it looks like it's going to be okay. April 17th to the 18th. Uh, men of all ages, just going to be a really good time. I see Pastor Joe here, and a number of the men already signed up and eager to go. Because it's a tent camping, you say we have a little bit more flexibility on the deadline. But be in touch with Joe. I'm sure it's going to be a great time in God's creation and in thinking about uh, thinking about the Lord and, and just what healthy relationship is. Now, one of my favorite things is when I can introduce you to a new parishioner, our youngest parishioner, Oliver Simon Vanek, and uh, Adam and Morgan are the very proud parents, and the Ballantines, yeah, and Tricia and Dale Ratz are the grandparents, so isn't that great? Um, and as a church family, see, whenever I think of a new baby coming into the congregation, I immediately think of the great responsibility we have because we here at Providence take Ephesians 4 very seriously, which is that the church actually builds one another up in Christ. And so God has entrusted us with another little life to say we want to point them to Christ in our conduct and in our speech. And so always new life in the church comes with that responsibility of, hey, we have mutual obligations to one another uh, to, to uh, build each other up into maturity. So those things being said, I'll turn it over to Pastor Ian, who will call us to worship. Well, church, good morning. Let's go ahead and stand together and focus our hearts on the Lord. Father, thank you that in your wisdom you founded the earth and the heavens. 
And Lord, there was a day upon which you eternally set forth that your Son, the only begotten one, would come to that earth and he would live a life before you of perfection and holiness and righteousness with great zeal for your word and love and mercy and justice and in kindness. Lord, truly, he is the image of the invisible God. He shows us who you are. He shows us what you are like. He shows us your will for our lives. Father, thank you that it was upon him there was, that was our chastisement and punishment that satisfied all of your holy wrath and was buried, forgiven, all sin and shame. For those who entrust themselves to Christ will not be remembered by you. Lord, thank you that it is this good news that prompts us to sing. And it's this good news that gives us gratitude beyond measure and joy incorruptible. Father, wherever we are this morning, whether we are struggling in a trial or we're overjo overjoyed in a delightful season of life or there's other, something else, Lord, on our minds, we pray that we would fix ourselves on this good news of Christ, that he has done it, that there is no other that we have every hope in him. And so we sing of this immortal, invisible, God-only wise. Father, help us to confess together and remember together that you are a God of light and in you there is no darkness. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for this morning you've made for us. In Jesus we pray, amen. Well, I'll see. 
sufferings of Christ this last Friday and the glories of his resurrection on Sunday and, and this Sunday we think about his ascension which is just as crucial as both his death and his resurrection um, and so we will look at Daniel together in Revelation where we'll profess our, a right response to this this type of God which we serve and which we worship this morning so Daniel writes behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's respond together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.
As we worship this morning, let's go before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to ask for your grace and mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, as we have sinned against you this week. Forgive us, we pray. Thank you for loving us enough that if we bring our sins to you and confess them, that you will forgive them. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship you this Sunday morning. Lord, we pray for our church. We are thankful for our pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and our staff. We are thankful for the relationship with you. We ask that each of them grow closer to you as they study and meditate on your word. Give them encouragement and blessing this week. Please give the elders wisdom and discernment as they interview the future worship pastor. Direct their paths, we pray. We bring before your throne the missionaries that are all over the world. Give them boldness and clarity as they share the good news of Jesus. Protect them and their families during this pandemic. Encourage and strengthen them during these times. Father, soften hearts of those that do not know you yet. 
We are thankful for the opportunities we have had as a church working alongside these missionaries. We pray that the work might have much fruit and many people would come to a saving knowledge of you. We also pray for the opportunities we have right here in our church. Use the men's, women's, and children's ministry to proclaim the name of Jesus. We pray for our local partners in Northeast Ohio. Pray that the ministries of Cornerstone Pregnancy Center and Fieldstone Love Inc. might help those that are hurting and find rest that only can be found in you. We ask for blessing upon those in our congregation who are struggling with illness, recovering from surgery, or enduring treatments. We ask that you draw them close and give them peace. We ask that your name might be glorified in the trials. As we open your perfect word this morning, pray that our hearts might be softened to receive your teaching. As in your precious name we pray. Amen. As we continue worship, please stand with me as we open up God's word to Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bounded up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thank you, CJ, and those uh, most perceptive uh, among us will remember that we actually left off in the Gospel of Luke, not in chapter 10, but in chapter 7. So why do we find ourselves in chapter 10 today? And that's because I think we need to revisit this uh, more than a, a reminder, but to, to revisit often what is central to our calling in Christ, and that is Christian love that I don't remember a time in my adult life where I felt like the wor world is so filled with uh, hatreds uh, and bitter feelings that be it over politics or views on the virus or a host of other things, you know, the Equality Act, but I, I can't remember a time where I've had so many disagreements with so many people and how easy it is to be sucked into that vortex and to really become angry, on edge, uh, to look to myself, whatever it would be. You know, I'm reminded in this age, that old saying, that only humans can be inhumane. And I hope that as we have throughout this uh, time in our season as Christians, as a church family, is to really see what's happening 
as an opportunity that just as we looked last week at the idea of hope, today looking at love to say, actually, when, when the culture's going the way that it is and when we're squeezed and pressured and when things aren't going our way, then instead of playing defense and being afraid that the Christian can have confidence and has real tools, and one of the greatest tools is Christian love. And in this famous parable... You see, well, I guess it's first to look at what a parable is. You remember from two weeks ago that a parable is a short illustrative story that tells us what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, so it's not if you're reading this and you say, well, I don't know if that would have happened in history. You say you're really reading it incorrectly, that it's uh, much more like a sermon illustration. It's to get us thinking, say, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? That at this point in the gospel, that this is about true discipleship. That the word disciple means to be a follower, and that's what's we're, what we're about here, right? If you've been converted, and if you are a follower of Jesus, then it comes uh, about discipleship. How do I really follow Jesus? How do I live out my faith? What does that look like? And in these parables, in this particular parable, I would say, there's a tendency to what I would call over-interpret, that some pastors I hear that they come to these very pointed things that everybody in the congregation needs to do, and I say, well, let's not over-interpret the parables, but rather to look at the plain principles, right? Not just the prescriptions, that is the ethic, but the plain principles laid out for what it means to follow Jesus. That yes, there's philanthropy in this passage, but something far greater about our standing before God, and again, how we live out our faith in this context. So first we begin, as we always do, that this, uh, of course, was not preached immediately into Avon, but it was preached immediately into first century Judea, the Roman colony. So we must appreciate the context of the parable. So starting 25 and really through verse 29, I think we get a lot of the context. You've got to put yourself here. So you could read it this way. Uh, a theologian comes to test Jesus. Say so we know that his motives are not pure, right? That Luke... Uh, you know, gathering from the situation. He knows, right, that this man really is not interested uh, genuinely in an answer, but actually wants to be uh, justified in his own views, that he really wants to prove Jesus wrong. So you can put yourself there, right, that you have the new rabbi on the scene who's not really a rabbi at all. He's just a carpenter, and he's got a following. And this is tremendously embarrassing for you if you're actually an expert in the Bible like this lawyer. And so you want to put Jesus to the test. Why? In order to show everybody else that he's really a fool that he has no idea what he's talking about and that he can, he can be publicly embarrassed. That's what the lawyer wants to do. He stands up and he says, well, I've got one for you, you so-called rabbi. And he asks a question. It's actually not a bad question. It's uh, a question we all must ask, right? He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Uh, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And I think we learn, if nothing else from this question, that this lawyer understands his relationship with God to be transactional. Like this is the default position of the human mind, isn't it? What do I need to do? It's God on our terms. Tell me what I need to do in order to earn, in order to be right with God. You see how that's taking God on our terms, so it's bringing a relationship with the Lord into our locus of control. I think that's what legalism always does, among other things. Say legalism, when we reduce a relationship with God to rules, 
uh, what we're really trying to do is to get it down to a size where I can manage it on my own, right? So there's the lawyer. He's very learned. He knows uh, the Bible well, but is kind of plowing through his own way in life. And he says, what must I do to be saved? It's a transactional understanding, a legalistic one. Now, what Jesus does here to this man is great, even if you're not in theological debate, as many of you probably in debates about a lot of things, but he he questions the questioner. Can you see that? Jesus routinely does this. He says, okay, here comes a question. It's lobbed his way. Jesus asks a question in return in order to understand this man's uh, presuppositions, where he's coming from. So he basically says, how would you answer your own question? And what does the man say? He must have seen this right back to him as the softball of softballs. I mean, this ball just, you know, kind of floated up right down the middle of the plate. You know, you're asking me, the learned theologian, the most fundamental question, how do I get to heaven? Well, he, what does he do? He cites the Shema, what uh, Hebrew would have cited two times a day, every day of his life, right? Deuteronomy 6.5, and as was common practice, he also adds Leviticus 19.18. He says, love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. You say, that's easy. Say, every Jew knew that the summary of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. And so even Jesus, he says, you've, you've answered it correctly. Jesus himself and the other gospels will answer the question that way. So again, this is the correct answer. So what's Jesus going to do next? Say so next he, he lays the hook. So I think the real hook in the passage comes from what Jesus says next, right? He says, do this at the end of verse 28. He said, you answered it perfectly. Do it and you'll live. You see, why is that a hook? Say, so maybe we can try it here. So who here has loved God perfectly? <laughs> Have you loved God perfectly with your mind and your talents and your body, always doing what he wants? Does anyone want to stand up? I know. Is which one among our congregation has been the perfect neighbor <laughs> that you've always loved the person next to you just as God would love them? You see, that's the hook. Lawyer, you got the right answer. But you know deep down that you don't fulfill this even by your own standards. So that's the context. And what does this man want to do to press it further? He does what all of us do, right? He says uh, he looks for a way. You've got to love it, right? How modern this 2,000-year-old text. He says he wants to justify himself to say, well, actually, the reason why I'm not a great God lover and why I don't love my neighbor that well is it's really hard to define your neighbor, right? That he wants to narrow the category of neighbor. You see, that's what he said. Well, how would you define neighbor? You know, it's kind of a, you know, a nebulous category. So he tries to narrow the law, right, so that he can justify himself in order to show that he's not that bad of a person, that actually he is quite a good scribe. Now, this process you'll see elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, what I've just unpacked. So, this is why Paul, so you want to always make the connection across, right, God gives us one Bible, it's one story. Paul will often say, so Romans 7, Galatians 3, what he'll say is the law was given so that you might see your transgressions. So we think of the Old Testament law, right, not just as a rule book, as a lot of people say, well, you know, all that stuff's a bunch of rules. Say it's not a rule book, but what it is is it's a mirror showing us the character of God, right, that here's God's holy law, and when we know it and learn it, our immediate reaction is, I can't do it. 
it's got a kind of boomerang effect where I say, well, I, it's held up in front of me, in this case, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, to love God with all that you are at every moment and to love your neighbor exactly as you would love yourself, to love your neighbor as God would. You say the only reaction to that kind of thing is, well, I, I, I can't do it if it means what it means plainly. And so it's pointed to my own transgressions. And what I'm left with is a kind of legalistic faith where I try to justify myself. Well, it's not as it seems, and there's a whole reason why I can't do what the law says, and on and on it goes. And so enter now the famous story, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus wants to illustrate to this guy and say, how do you answer that? Okay, who's your neighbor? And he tells a short illustrative story, very famously, that's going to feature a traveler, that the traveler is going down a notoriously dangerous road. I got very fatigued this week, actually, reading all the commentaries on, uh, you know, the kind of road this would have been. I mean, well into to the 19th century, uh, people are getting robbed on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, so, or Jerusalem to Jericho, saying, this is a very bad road. It's a narrow pass. You got to go way down the mountain. Everybody's getting robbed there for many, many centuries. So this is a very dangerous, they would have known the context. And he says, you know, there's a traveler going down this very dangerous road. And as was uh, a frequent occurrence that he gets mugged by, uh, more than mugged by a bunch of bandits who um, not only steal his stuff and leave him naked, but actually beat him within an inch of his life. That um, he is um, really, really bloodied and has been stripped down so that there's nothing there. Just a, a bloodied body on the side of this really jagged road. And uh, then three travelers, uh, right, three fellow travelers are going to come up and see this man beaten on the side of the road. That's what Jesus, that's the kind of story that he's going to tell us. And now I think, so some principles from, some principles from the story. Firstly, and I, I here I, I want to be very careful, and I'll show you why we're doing chapter 10 today. I think the first lesson we gather from this Good Samaritan is that self-preservation can be a threat to real Christian love. That's what I want us to see first. Self-preservation can be a threat to real love. Say, who are the first two to come by? You say, you might, the way the story's set up, say, oh, very good, we've got some clergymen coming by, right? We got the pastors coming by. First, the priest, who would have been a descendant of Aaron. He would have had duties uh, in the temple. Say, this is great. I mean, if anybody's gonna help this poor beaten soul on a dangerous road, surely it's God's man, the holy man. And if not him, then the Levite, who would have been a kind of uh, clergyman underneath the, the, the priest, right? He would have been from the tribe of Levi, but not a descendant of Aaron. So you have two, you know, men of the cloth. Uh, surely they're going to help. But memorably from all history, you say, what do they do? Did you catch it? They, they walk by the other side. Now, why do they walk by the other side? I, I, think, I think most plausibly, again, discern for yourself, but... I think what's happening, notice how Luke describes the guy that's been beaten in verse 30. It's a great description, right? The guy's half dead. Meaning you don't really know if he's alive or he's dead, I think. Uh, so here you are, you see this guy, he's naked, he's bloodied. Is he breathing? Is he not breathing? But it's really horrific to look at. Why is this important for the priest and the Levite? Say, so not that we read numbers a lot, but it's a big problem. It's a big problem if a priest came in contact with a, cor contact with a corpse. So this week, read, have a read of Numbers chapter 19 from verse 11. 
And you'll read the Levitical law about if a priest comes or any Jew came in contact with a corpse, that guess what? You, you faced a quarantine. <laughs> you know about that? Um, One-week quarantine. Some members of the con congregation have been in quarantine for many, many months on end because of uh, their uh, misfortune. But we know about quarantines now. You say, this is not fun. So if you come in contact with a corpse... You're one week sidelined, and then you've got to find the, ra the, the ashes of a red heifer and make sacrifices. And, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's very inconvenient. So I think what's happening is that the priest and the Levite, seeing a half-dead man, are actually like the risk is pretty high to take care of him because then I'd be facing a quarantine and I'd really be in trouble. So they walk around the other side. So for the priest and the Levite, love is a matter of convenience. It shouldn't be something that's done out of any sense of duty or inner impulse, but rather love is a matter of convenience. You know, I wonder too at this point for the priest and the Levite, now here I'm speculating, but think about this too, speculation. But do you think they pass judgment on the man too? You say, that what's, that's what I would, you know, what's this poor chap doing with all that money walking around this dangerous road? What a fool, you know, I don't, I'm not going to help out this guy. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he, he's bound, he, he exercised poor judgment. Um, you say, that's my default mode. I wonder too if that's a bit of it. But whether the priest and the Levite they judged or whether they're just thinking about convenience or probably more likely something like convenience first or safety first. That's their default mode. Now, you see, maybe you're ahead of me. This is where I have to be very, very careful. I'm trying to be very careful. We've been programmed the last 14 months to think that our neighbors are dirty and that we're to be afraid of them. And what I find myself doing, I'm walking down the sidewalk, say, what do I do? And this is why I've been thinking so much of this parable so these months on end, because you know what I find myself doing? Walking around the other side. <laughs> and I can't help but think, say, is my concern of self-preservation causing a problem for real Christian charity? Say, do we want a world in which that we can't extend a hand of help when we're in this position? Now, again, I, again personal story. I'm across the street finishing, finishing up a lunch at Hex with a friend, and my friend uses the restroom. I walk out, two older ladies walking out into the parking lot. One of them trips on the uh, sewer grate, bad fall, older lady, lots of blood. And I thought, well, I mean, immediately we called the ambulance, but I thought, uh, what was my first reaction? Well, I, I don't know if I should help this lady because I might, I, I don't know what she'll think. And you say that whole gap right there, say whatever we, I, I know the virus is the virus. I'm not saying, I don't think that, I don't want anybody here to say, Pastor Shaw says we should be putting ourselves at risk. And if you have a comorbidity, you should pretend. Say, not at all. I recognize, I recognize that this virus is serious. We've taken many measures here. What I'm going at here is the mindset that has been programmed in our minds, right? That we for 14 months have been said, you can't go close. Don't offer a hand of care, right? There, that person's going to pollute you or, you know, the, the, the runny nose is there and that's going to get your... In other words, I want us to see that hopefully when we come out of this, that people, our neighbors, are not those who are going to pollute us, but their children to be loved. 
And I hope, again, you're not hearing me say, well, you know, this virus is, you know, that's not where I'm going with this. It is the mindset of whether or not people that I don't know and people who need my help are just going to, uh, they're dirty folks and vectors of disease and I need to walk around the other side, but rather God's people must say, their souls to be loved. And self-preservation, of course, you know, bodies are important, right? If we don't have our bodies in good shape, then we can't do any of this. So again, we don't want to be reckless with our bodies, but we want to be those who love and who serve and don't see other people as those to be feared. I hope that's okay. Self-preservation can be a threat to real Christian love. And when we pull out of this, may God's people be different, right? People will cough and sneeze in church. The children in the back will have runny noses. It's part of a fallen world. And we're okay with that because there's a higher principle. So firstly, self-preservation can be a threat to real love. Now, what else from this, you know, hard-hitting parable as they all are, that real charity demands sacrifice, I think there, you know, the first century audience would have probably, there probably would have been an audible gasp at verse 30, uh, 33, right? Excuse me, yes, verse 33, right? So who are you thinking is going to come? You know, here's the priest and here's the Levite. I think the, the audience would have been thinking, okay, here comes a Jewish layman, right? The layman's going to show up, the, the fancy clergymen who know the right answers, but they don't really put it into practice. But no, unthinkably, verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now, we don't think much of Samaritans now because we have good Samaritan laws in the Ohio Revised Code, right? Because Samaritans are very good things as far as the popular ear understands it. But Samaritans in this context would have been like the the lowest possible figure you could ever make a hero of your story, right? Not only are they an ethnic outsider, which they certainly were, right? That they intermixed uh, with the native peoples of the land, that they weren't fully Jewish, so there's an ethnic divide. But more than that, there's probably a doctrinal divide uh, with the Samaritan that they believe differently. They set up their own mount to worship God on Mount Gerizim, that this is an outsider, a heretic, an ethnic person uh, who's not like us, who's dirty. And in comes the Samaritan, and you see the thrust of the parable, even by the, the way that it's set up, where the attention goes from verse 34. Look at the effort that this Samaritan goes through to help this poor chap. He approaches the man. He gets within six feet. He binds up the wounds. Probably, if you read this as the man was left naked, then you're binding up the wounds with your own clothing, you know, tearing pieces from it and, uh, you know, binding up the wounds. You say it's not like today where you go to any store and can buy a new shirt, that this is a costly thing to do. You get down in there, it's messy. Perhaps you've seen somebody, a stranger, bleeding, bodily fluids. It's messy. But he gets down in there and he binds up the wounds. He pours choice elements on the wound, right? He pours wine as the antiseptic on there so that it would cleanse out the wound, and he pours oil to soothe, that this had to be an expensive thing to do. That he places this man, uh, was he, you know, should add, was he carrying that oil and wine because he was a businessman and this is part of his trade? We don't know, but either way, high cost. Places the man on his animal, which probably meant if it's a pack animal, you couldn't have two adult males riding on a pack animal, so this meant that he walked the rest of the way had to be tired. 
He goes out of his way to the inn, and Michael Ramsden taught me this. He says, you know, going to the inn is probably uh, in a Jewish part of town. So this is, you know, going, this is a cowboy going into Indian territory to look after the man, right? It's not that he's in Samaria. He's on Jewish turf, but he takes him to the inn, probably risking his life, stays the night. You wonder, a kind of night vigil, waking up routinely to make sure that this man is okay, to make sure that he's still breathing. This costs him time. This costs him energy. He pays his expenses. A denarius would have been one day's wage. So I've got it calculated there even on a minimum wage. But for us, you say several hundred dollars to be entrusted to the innkeeper. What we have here is that this Samaritan used everything that he had to love this poor traveler who he found on his way. We use the phrase here at Providence, your time, your talents, and your treasure. Say those three, right? It certainly cost the Samaritan his time. It's certainly, I mean, talents, you say, well, you, it shows actually quite a bit of aptitude, I think, to bind up the wounds and to transport this man and to make the deal. You say, I, he used his mind in a really, uh, I think, sensible way to, to, to make sure that his life was preserved and he uses his treasure at great cost and he pays his expenses. His time and his talents and his treasure were all poured out into somebody who would have been, quote, an enemy. And again, I pause here because I think so much in the evangelical church gets this part wrong. You say there's nothing here about, having, uh, about love having to agree with somebody else's beliefs, right? That we've confused this. Well, in order to love, I have to agree with false positions. You say, not at all. So we hold our truths, and a lot of people are going to find our truths very... Uh, they don't like the truth that scripture holds. You say, nothing that I'm talking about, about love here, has anything to do with having to agree or, or how we've come to understand the word tolerate. It's not that. It's that flowing out of the Christ follower is a love of another kind. That God's entrusted us as stewards of time and talents and treasures. And as we live our life, that we're to live in such a way that shows sacrifice to those in our midst whom we can help. So I ask you this. I say, think of love as we understand it. We've hit this theme a lot. It's such a distorted theme, right? Love being eros and romantic. Say real love is anchored in, in sacrifice and cost. Say almost every couple I marry, I have them up here. Say, think about the nature of love. You say, can you ever separate love from suffering and sacrifice? Probably not. That those two go together. You're, it's not about what you get, right? But, but love is about giving and about sacrifice. And so it is here that the other two can't be bothered. Love is a matter of convenience, but not so for the Samaritan. He pours out all that he is in order to help. So let's press on. So again, points we've made. Self-preservation can be a threat to real love. Secondly, real charity demands sacrifice. And thirdly, I think we need, we need the eyes of Christ. We need his wisdom. You see what happens here? I love the, you know, the verbs, all three see, right? The priest comes and he saw the man and passed by the other side. The Levite comes, he saw the man and passed by the other side. But the Samaritan comes to where this man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. You say, what's the difference there? All three saw but only one really had the proper compassion. Reminds me of a great stanza of a William Blake play. So this life's dim windows of the soul distorts the heavens from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through the eye. Say, so what does Blake mean there? When you see with, but not through the eye. You say, I see a whole lot of things. 
say, that's seeing with. But when you see through the eye, it goes down into the heart. It's like Herbert who said, a man that looks on glass, on it may stay his eye, but if he pleaseth through it pass, and then the heavens a spy. So yeah, we can look at the glass and just say that's nice glass, or to say actually, it's a, it's a way, it's a window out to a much greater vista. And so it is here, right? That all of them saw, but only one of them really saw. Only one of them allowed their heart to be penetrated with the need, despite the disagreements and potential hatred and quite frankly, that they, that person probably wanted a lot of, uh, you, you know, a lot of disagreements and yet something else prevailed that we need the eyes of Christ to see. You know, something else that I, I thought about here, there was a famous study back in the 1930s by a, a sociologist named Lapierre. And this in 19, 1930s in America, say anti-Asian anti sentiment was high. A lot of people, you know, just a, a lot of... Um, anti-Asian anti feelings among the American population. And so LaPierre and his wife traveled around the country with a number of, of young adult Asians, and they would go to restaurants, and they would go to hotels, and almost always that the, the proprietors would allow them in and treat them normally and kindly. And LaPierre then sent out uh, a survey asking the same proprietors, you know, would you ever allow an Asian uh, in Asian to, you know, dine at your establishment or sleep in your establishment. And overwhelmingly, uh, well over 90% of the proprietors say, no, we'd never allow an Asian, uh, an Asian into, into our establishment. And what LaPierre discovered, he said, not only a difference between attitudes and behaviors, that's where this study is most uh, classically um, points to difference between attitudes and behaviors, but I think there's something else going on here, and it's very important for us, that if we just think of the other side, right, those who are really antagonistic to our cause, and that's a very real thing, is this kind of a lumped-in sum of people that we have access to through social media and the news. You say it might be more the case that when you sit down across the table from them over a cup of coffee, you're going to find you have serious disagreements, and we ought not compromise, but there's something human there and something to be loved. And you see, that's why I wanted to talk about this today, that we're so often sucked into the vortex to think that we're, you know, again, that all we have to do as Christians is to play defense and to, you know, keep kind of all this stuff away from us. Say, no, Christ has given us a great weapon here, Christian charity and kindness. To say the love of Christ flows through us. Say, yeah, I have serious disagreements, but you know what? There's still going to be those in my path, and I'm called to be sincere and to sacrifice for them insofar as Christ motivates me to do them. And where this ends, again, you debate Jesus, you're going to be embarrassed. Jesus actually ends up getting the lawyer to think about a different question than the one he asked. So the initial question that the lawyer asked, right, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable, and actually there's a different question, though related question, that emerges, isn't there? He said, you're asking the wrong question about who is your neighbor. The real question for the faithful of God is, are you a good neighbor? Do you love as God wants you to love? So while you think about principles of this, you say, yeah, there's a broadly kind of Boy Scout, you know, philanthropic thrust to this, that as you go through life, you should be like the Samaritan and help where you can. You say, that most certainly is one application of the passage, no doubt about it, but it's way more profound than that. The question comes to us, am I a great neighbor in the way that it's been defined here? And you know how I answer that? No. I'm actually a very lousy neighbor. 
that I don't love other people the way that God would want me to. I actually allow anger into my heart that I only can do this and even think about doing it if Christ helps me. That this, like all sections of the Bible, isn't just go out and try a bit harder and be like this guy and take care of other people. Say, so we don't need you. What we see here is exactly as the lawyer. So we're much more like the lawyer and the priest and the Levite than we are the Samaritans. And say, you know what? I'm a lousy neighbor and I need help. How am I ever going to do this? All I do is justify myself. And you know, friends, gloriously, because we and the great host of all the Christians who've been through the centuries, we've only read this parable post-first Easter. Everyone who's ever read this in church has read it after Easter, and you say, well, we do know the perfect neighbor, don't we? Said there's actually only been one perfect neighbor. That I'm the guy much more beaten and naked on the side of the road because of my own folly, doing stupid things, looking out for myself that I needed help from the outside, from the one who gave it all, his time, his talents and treasures, in fact, his whole life to rescue me. See, that's what this parable points us to. Yes, Christians are called to a different kind of love, but that different kind of love comes from the Lord Jesus, and if we don't see that, then we're just moralizing. So if you're not Christian today, very glad you're here. Pray before the first service. I'm really thankful. There are always non-Christians here. Say, God um, always brings most interesting people, but you're not a Christian here today. You're just kind of going through life. You say, I don't, you know, I don't know what to make of all this. I hope at the very least you see the core, whatever you hear about Christians. Say, we've opened up the Bible today. Say, there's a, a love of another kind that comes through in the Bible. Say, it's not about what we're against, but it's about what we're for, the charity of God that flows through us. And in a world of hatreds, there is a better way that we would surrender to the Lord Jesus on exactly these terms to say, you're, we're in the position of the lawyer to say, well, I know what perfect is. If there's a God, I know what he wants, but I can't do it. You say, if, if that's you, say you're, you're, you're right there to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not perfect. And if there's a God, he's, I need help. God's put forth Jesus to say, I recognize he's died for my transgressions and all the times I've pumped my fist and, 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 and you know, sworn off God that God's put forth Jesus, that I can agree about my sin and come to a relationship with God and be reconciled through Jesus. Do you see that? And if we are Christians, we must fight every day not to be sucked in, <laughs> not to be sucked in into a world of hate and where we think we always have to be playing defense, but rather to say God's love in us is a wonderful thing and that as he moves in our midst that say, this is what's going to win people. May we be a sincerely loving congregation. Self-preservation and real love are going to be in competition. We have to think about that. The real charity demands sacrifice, that we need the eyes of Christ, and that this can be a great evangelistic tool in the times in which we live. So I'll pray and invite the team back up. Lord, thank you for this uh, memorable story that pierces us at so many angles. Help us not just to moralize, to say, oh, there's you know, a, a person that I, I would you know, just throw money at or something. You say, not, that's not the thrust of this. But to see the question, to say we're called to love you perfectly and to love others perfectly, and we have no shot on our own. So mold us more and more into the likeness of Christ, who is the only perfect neighbor. And only by his strength can we move down this uh, path even a little bit. Lord, again, as we see 
different things coming at us and how we have maybe a lot of disagreements with people. I don't, I know, don't doubt that. I certainly do. Help us to see there is a higher ethic for us, that there's a love of another kind, and maybe, just maybe, that others would see this love in us and that they would become keen followers of the Lord Jesus. May his name be lifted high for Christ's sake. Amen. Church, let's stand together, respond, singing joyfully.
feel like I'm neglecting my duties without a third service, so shall we do it one more time and make me feel good? <laughs> For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ compels us. May we be those who show that love of another kind, because Christ is at work in our lives. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, honor, dominion and authority through all the ages, now and forevermore. Amen. May we go in God's love. Thank you.